Uh, when I was a teenager, I watched Star Trek too much, but on TV, but you know those opening words, boldly going, where, what? No man has gone before. That's kind of how I feel with this sermon, although I'm not the first one. Jesus beat me to it, and a few other preachers, I'm sure, but it would have been very easy to skip Mark 8, because today I want to talk to you about a subject that Jesus introduces with his followers that we would call today the crucified life. And I want to tell you, we have in our world right now, in our culture, especially in the Western world, we have nowhere to put that. And it would be easier not to talk about it. The crucified life. First of all, it's an oxymoron, right? Like fried ice. Crucified means you, you're put to death slowly. So it's like slow death life. But it's like dead living. It's kind of an oxymoron. Plus, over the last number of decades in uh, the church at large, churches like ours and many others, I, I worry about how me-centered churches become. When even what we just did, worship, and I believe this better of you as we come into God's presence, but, so, but, but even I can be tempted to think, Lord, uh, I'm grateful for worship, not because I got to bow before the awesomeness of who you are and tremble at the thought of ever being out of alignment with you. Rather, even worship I can look at, and it can be done, and I can say, I wonder what that did for me when it's for him. And so we, we live in this kind of era where theology has been replaced with meology. And uh, everything's about us in, in the end, us being benefited, us feeling better, us being helped. And that is a part of the equation, but it doesn't start with us. It starts with him. And so we, we encounter Jesus who just shakes every category we have always. And he turns it upside down. And he says, if you really want to find life, uh, don't look here inside yourself. And uh, in fact, you're going to have to die to yourself so that you can find my resurrection life. And I go, uh, could I just change, could I just turn the page and pretend I didn't read that? Let's get on to some, like, what he does for me stuff. Here's how, we've got to let, locate ourselves first of all. Here's how Jesus inter introduces for the very first time this concept of the crucified life, which later New Testament writers, in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, unfold even more for us. But here's how he starts. He's in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Mark 8, 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. So we were there last year with a group of you, uh, Sandy and I, and uh, I, I gave one of you my phone so you could take this picture. And it's a very nice picture of my wife. But um, this is Caesarea Philippi. And you notice it's quite rocky and mountainous. We're on the foothills of the Mount Hermon range. And if you go around that range and go north, you're into Syria and Damascus. And so we're pretty north in Israel. And uh, you see that cave right above our heads. Back... 2,000 years ago in Jesus' time, 
there was, this was a very, first of all, Roman area. This was not a Jewish area. This was very Roman. And Caesarea, Philippi, like Caesar's town, Caesarea. And so this is very Roman and, and very pagan. And they, they worshipped idols. And here they worshipped the pan god, P-A-N, pan god. We get the word panic from that. We get the word pandemonium from that. And we get several Disney productions from that pan. <laughs> it came from here. Unfortunately, it was a very perverted kind of way of worshiping. It involved a lot of sexual exploitation. In fact, bringing Jesus' disciples up here was sort of like bringing them into the red light district of Israel. It was very perverse. It was very dark. It was very evil. And it was even believed that that cave where the temple was built was a, was a quote-unquote gateway to the underworld and the powers, the dark powers. And... Uh, it would be here in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus will say, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we don't know for sure, but it's possible that Jesus had in mind that, the gateway to the underworld. But Jesus' truth, Jesus' church would be built in spite of the oppositions of hell and demonic power. Maybe that was it. Here's what we know for sure in the rather narrow north-south geography of Israel. Jerusalem's down here towards the south, and Caesarea Philippi is way up there in the north. There's few times Jesus would ever be farther from Jerusalem than he is at this point. Ironically, it's at this point that he starts talking about having to go back to Jerusalem to what? To have a celebration, to be honored? No, to be crucified. And... At that point, and I'm always touched by the love of God when I'm around Caesarea Philippi, it was at that point that he most likely could have just, just scooted around the bottom of this mountain range and gone, to, and gone up to Damascus and disappeared and escaped the cross. Instead, some, some New Testament writers say Jesus set his face like flint to go back to Jerusalem. Everything that follows this moment is the journey back to Jerusalem to willfully and deliberately and knowingly face what he's going to face. He's going to die and then he's going to rise again. And it's going to become a paradigm for what the Christian life is all about. Where we, we die to the old. We die to the sin. We die to the addictions. We die to the slavery of darkness. And the powers of the spiritual underworld. Oh man, I'm, my, my, I'm just having a bad time with my mics here. And we die to all of that so that we can live in the new resurrection power of Jesus. It's, it's, it's death and then resurrection. And so Jesus is going to say, I'm now, right up here, he's going to say, I'm now heading back to Jerusalem. It's right there in the next verse, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed. So first of all, he's going to be rejected. That, that's painful enough. And then he's going to be killed, very torturously and slowly killed. Then after three days, rise again. So what he does now, up here at Caesarea Philippi, is invite his disciples to follow him. Not just geographically down to Jerusalem, but in many senses, I want you to follow my pathway to die, to be crucified, and then to live. And so, in verse 34, 
Then he called the crowd to him. So he's up here in the area of Caesarea Philippi. He says, uh, at, at, this, at this farthest away point from Jerusalem, he starts talking about going back to Jerusalem and face this. And then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, and here's the invitation to go with him. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I would prefer Jesus just said, whoever wants to be my disciple, just follow me. Because, you know, I do love him. And he's amazing. And he's God in the flesh. But Jesus is going to dare us to go where no man's gone before. He's going to counter everything of entitlement and self-interest inside of us. And he said, if you want to follow me, the pathway will be to deny yourself. Uh, the late Pastor Jack Hayford used to say, self-denial is that act of deciding against yourself. I mean, what sane human being would ever want to decide against themselves? But Jesus said, there is a pathway to resurrection life that involves deciding against yourself. You, you deny yourself and you take up your cross in order to what? Follow me. If you're going to follow me, this will be your pathway. And this is the description of the crucified life. Now, whenever I try to talk about the crucified life, um, you know, because of the brokenness of our culture, because of the things we kind of default to in our own emotional and psychological pain, um, we sometimes default to wrong conclusions. So I just want to tell you, I just want to give you my little short list as to what the crucified life is not. This is not what Jesus is talking about. First of all, Jesus is not talking about self-hatred. He created you and he loves you. You don't want to be hating what God loves. He loves you. So it's not hating yourself. Okay, I'm just going to hate myself. I'm going to deny myself. It means just hating. No, it doesn't mean hating yourself. It also doesn't mean self-abuse. Doesn't mean intentionally inflicting pain. Doesn't mean cutting yourself. It doesn't mean doing weird things with your diet and starving yourself. It doesn't mean uh, subjecting yourself to abusive situations on purpose just so you can be an abuse victim. That's not, that's not the crucified life. It's also not neglecting your responsibilities. It's not neglecting responsibility. I mean, I did not... Just for your information, not that you needed this information, I did brush my teeth this morning. Which means I did not get up this morning and say, I'm dead to self, so I'm not going to brush my teeth. <laughs> yeah, that would be closer to stupidity than self-denial. <laughs> you know, self-denial and self-neglect are two very different things. Self-neglect is our stewardship. It's a responsibility we need to have. Self-denial is when you deliberately put aside a legitimate need for a higher goal. That's what Jesus calls us to, not self-neglect. In fact, the crucified life, dying to self, does not mean that you don't have legitimate needs. Let's start with oxygen. That would be a good one. You, you need oxygen. Otherwise, well, you won't be here in a couple, three minutes. And you need food, and you need water, and you need love, and you need community, and you need purpose, and you need dignity, and you need all kinds of things. You need hope. Those things are legitimate needs. He's not saying die to those things. He's also not saying uh, just feel guilty all the time. I, I know Christians, they're just morbid. We can be such a morbid bunch sometimes. 
You know, the guiltier I feel, the holier I feel. No, we just worship God in his holiness. It means he's set apart from evil. It means we have hope because we're not trapped by what's around us. He's set apart. He's unique. There's no one like him. And listen, he makes us holy, sets us apart from sin, makes us unique, makes us holy by his spirit. This is awesome. And, and, and when he's forgiven you, when you've come to the cross and realize when he died, your sin was crucified to that cross with him, uh, that means there, there can be in your life a journey of dying to sin. And that doesn't mean you live in perpetual guilt. That means if Jesus' blood has washed away your sin, you've humbled yourself, you've received him into your life, it means you don't have to live with guilt anymore. Because you're his. You're forgiven. You're, he, Jesus, God looks at you and sees the righteousness of his own son, not your past track record. So it's not always feeling guilty or, or, or just being gloomy. You know, it, it just, it's not just, well, I'm dead to self. I'm, I'm, I'm just gloomy. I'm not faith-filled. I'm just gloomy because I'm dead. You know, so just for the record, that's not what Jesus is talking about. So if that's, if that's what the crucified life is not, what is the crucified life? Well, let's read it one more time. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Here's how I've distilled this. And you won't find this in a book. It's just after years of struggling with this, I've kind of simplified it down to this. The crucified life is saying no to everything that keeps me from saying yes to Jesus. There it is. I see Dr. Carol Taylor sitting back here, former president of Andrew University. I was part of the search process when she first came, when we were looking for a president for that school. And uh, I, I remember, Carol, you telling, you telling me and many others as we talk with you it's the one thing about you that stood out the most. You used to say, I just want my life to be a yes for Jesus, to Jesus. I just want my life to be a big yes to Jesus. And that means when we die to self, our life has to be an active no to the things that get in, the, in, in, in place of that. I want my life to be a big, wide open yes to Jesus. Dying to self is not morbid, it's going to be cross-cultural. It's not always comfortable. But it is choosing against ourselves when, when our self-life gets in the way of saying yes to Jesus. And here's how Jesus will unpack that in the next verse. For whoever, um, uh, let me just say this, he's going to deal with a myth here. There's going to be two myths now that this will require and the first is going to be the happiness myth. There is a happiness. How many times have I heard people say, all I want to do is be happy. And this has become the idolatrous God of our culture, happiness. And G but Jesus said in verse 35, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And you've got no room in that statement for the happiness myth. Because you said the goal of life cannot be your happiness. The goal of your life has to be finding life in me. And it means you do not live in this active sense of getting for yourself and saving life because you're going to lose it. 
It's like when I live in Southern California and we go to the family, go to the beach and grab a handful of sand. The harder I grabbed it, the more sand would kind of, kind of squeeze between my fingers. The harder we took, we just hold life so tightly in what I want in my happiness. And in the process, we find ourselves losing it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, of course, in that context, Jesus was talking in part to his own followers, many of whom would refuse later in their lives, refuse to renounce Jesus, and they would lose their lives because of it. And he says, he said, you'll have a choice. You can renounce me and walk away from me so that people don't kill you. Or, or you can lose your life, literally lose your life, die. And he said, you're going to find all of eternity. You're going to do this. Now, I'm not personally worried about me or you uh, being arrested tonight and then tortured and then killed tomorrow morning because we were in church today. I doubt the political powers will uh, force me to renounce Jesus tonight here in America, and I'm grateful for that. Thank God. Thank God. But for some people, that's the choice. However, for us, and this is what makes this subject so different for us, for us in a culture that's so committed to the idolatry of happiness, I mean, Jesus is just tearing into this. He's just saying, uh, when you say, well, look, come on, Pastor, all I want to do is be happy. Jesus is saying, you have come short of what all of life is about. Plus, happiness is a pursuit that's going to disappoint you. I'll put it on the screen. In her book a few years ago, uh, Emily Smith said, according to Psychology Today, in the year 2000, the number of books published about happiness was a modest 50. In 2008, only eight years later, that number had skyrocketed to 4,000. This is where our culture is going, just preoccupied with that personal happiness. And by the way, if you're a math nerd, that's a 7,900% increase in the books on happiness in eight years. Math is good for the soul. We all know that. <laughs> and yet, she said, there's a major problem with the happiness frenzy. It has failed to deliver on its promise. It's failed to deliver on its promise. Though the happiness industry continues to grow, as a society, we're in fact more miserable than ever. Depression rates are up, suicide rates are up. I mean, we are just more miserable than ever. Indeed, she writes, social scientists have uncovered a sad irony. Chasing happiness actually makes people unhappy. Yeah. So you know what the most recent slate of books, not Christian books, but secular books, social science books, psychology, the most recent slate have been books trying to figure out why our lock, stock, and barrel pursuit of happiness has left us so unhappy. You'll find all kinds of books in that subject out there now. But Jesus said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. If that's your goal, happiness, you're going to lose life in every way, not just eternally, but in this life as well. You're going to end up with loss, not abundance. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. We'll save it. 
uh, when I was a teenager in the late 60s, early 70s, when Star Trek was out. And, uh, you know, I wasn't there because I wasn't a hippie, but 30,000 hippies gathered in San Francisco in the late 60s to listen to Timothy Leary, who was propagating on our culture, the drug culture, uh, encouraging people to take marijuana and LSD and other hallucinogenic drugs, and his famous dictum, his famous statement, you need to turn on and tune in and drop out. And a whole culture en masse followed. But it left such a void in our culture that everything's about me and my experience and how can I even get higher? It left such a vacuum in our culture. I believe that's one of the things that opened us up to the Jesus People Movement in the late 60s, early 70s, starting with that same group of people, hippies, who became deeply disillusioned with our world's perspective when it comes to happiness, fulfillment, joy, and everything. But I love what Malcolm Muggeridge, that great British journalist, said. I can say that I never knew what joy was like until I gave up pursuing happiness. And for this, I'm beholden to Jesus. Well, praise God. He does know what he's talking about. Joy has elements of happiness in it, but it also has elements of fulfillment and well-being, a stability to your identity, an ability to relate to the issues of every given day independent of how you might feel that day because you knew who you are. You know who he is. And because of that, you are who you are. And he has secured your future. He's with you by his spirit in your present. He's forgiven your past. You live above Happiness, you live with joy when his resurrection spirit fills your life. So it's saying no. So Jesus is really, if he was here with people who won't necessarily get killed for their faith today, like some people in other parts of the world will today, he's just talking to us in our saturation with the myth of happiness. He, he just put this right in our face and said, don't make that your God because the more of it you seek, the less of it you'll have. There's another way. It's dying to that. And it's also dying, it's also saying no to another myth. It's the worldliness myth. And in some sense, he takes the happiness myth and kind of zooms out on it to, to the world in general. And, and everything we look to in this world to satisfy us. And uh, here's, so that's why he goes here next, verse 36. We're still in Mark 8. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? I mean, he just puts that in front of us. Good question. You think whole world. You think probably of fame and fortune. You think of popularity. You think of possessions. You think of, of happiness. You think of all of these things. And he really asks us the question we don't want to hear. What good is it? I mean, think about this. What good is it if you get everything you want in the world? And the myth says the world's enough. You don't even need a God unless maybe he makes you feel better on certain days. Otherwise, you don't even need him. But you have the world. Just think you could be rich. You could be famous. Everybody could like you. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the cards of luck might turn in your favor, we could say to ourselves. But Jesus puts it right in our face. First of all, says there's no such thing as the cards of luck. He said, you need me at the center of your pursuit because what if you gained the whole world but lost 
yourself. Lost your own soul. What if hell was your existence in eternity rather than heaven? What if you had no relationship with your creator and you spent eternity without him? What if you literally lost your soul while you're gaining everything in the world? And it's, this is part of what Jesus is calling us to turn our back on. Or what can you ever give in exchange for your soul? I mean, is a million dollars enough? I read somewhere recently there's 136,000 millionaires in New York City alone. You know what? You used to be lost in the crowd with a million bucks. It's not going to do anything for you. What can you give in exchange for your soul? And what about popularity? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. He's saying, you know, so many of us just hinge all our identity on whether we're liked or not. Some of us have had experience in our, in our high school. I've known people who've, in their high school experience, I mean, just the approval of their friends and the peer pressure was so strong that they either hid or denied the fact they were followers of Jesus because they knew they'd be eating lunch alone and their friends would be making fun of them, either to their face or behind their back. But Jesus says, if you're going to decide against yourself, if you're going to take up your cross and deny me and walk in a dimension of resurrection life, you will not find at the end of any other pathway. He says, you're going to even have times or you're willing to be ashamed of me because you've denied yourself and taken up your cross to follow me. And what is the world? He said, if you gain the whole world. I mean, there's some, many wonderful things in our world like sunsets and experiencing the arts and um, great friends and uh, fulfilling jobs and mathematics, mathematics. It's one of the reasons I believe in God, just the fact it works. I mean, there's wonderful things in the world. So what's Jesus saying? I mean, you got to hate math? I mean, some of you are already there, but uh, <laughs> you're so spiritual. Well, fortunately, up there in Caesarea Philippi, in his inner circle, listening to Jesus say these words was a guy by the name of John, the Apostle John. And the Apostle John later writes a letter in the New Testament, 1 John. And in chapter 2 of that letter, he describes what Jesus meant by world. He says in verse 15 of chapter 2, If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. So this is it. And, and what an exchange. You go after the world to fulfill you, to define you, to make you. He says, uh, you can be full of the world. You can be full of worldliness. But to the degree that you are, you are not full of the love of God. Because they don't share space. But then he defines what he means by world. Loving the world. For everything in the world, three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I mean, folks, this is good old-fashioned. Money, sex, and power. The lust of the flesh. Where you reduce people to objects and use them for your gratification. 
the lust of the eyes, where you just always have to have more. And you can never feel down on a day without going shopping. And you know, it's okay to go shopping once in a while when you feel down. But there is a lust to the eyes, like what fulfills my soul is what I can buy, what I can have, what I can possess, what I can, what I can get to give me an edge over other people, make me feel superior to them. What I think will finally make me happy. I mean, that I honestly was looking at a new iPhone yesterday. And I had to bat it down, you know, this will make me happy. You know, no, this will help me serve Jesus better. I love that one. <laughs> but the lust of the eyes, I see it, I want it. And the pride of life, that kind of spiritual narcissism that affects every one of us, that makes us so self-centered that we literally use people for our own purposes and we'll even abuse people and we'll be obnoxious bosses and, and we, will, we, we will just, we, we will just, God, twist off the rails because everything is about me. I live in this fantasy that life's a movie and I play the starring role and everybody else around me is supposed to be the supporting cast. First of all, nobody in your life believes that's what they are, your supporting cast. <laughs> but it's so, pride is so perverted. It puts you at the center. It uses abuse and abuses all the people around you. It doesn't make you a champion for justice. It makes you a perpetrator of injustice. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, everything the Bible determine, describes as worldliness, it will not cause you to champion the causes of justice in our world. It'll pervert them, and you'll be an agent of that. And Jesus said, you've got to die to it. And John just decides to put an exclamation mark behind that with verse 17. And the world and its desires will pass away. But whoever does the will of God <laughs> lives forever. So Jesus said, you want to follow me? You're going to have to say no to the happiness myth. You're even going to have to say no to the, to the worldliness myth. Because your life is a living no to everything that stands in the way of you being a living yes to following Jesus. And so Paul says this shocking thing as we conclude. In Galatians 6, verse 14, get this. I have not seen this on social media from anybody else lately or heard it on TV. It doesn't even sound natural. But he said, may I never boast. And he was a super apostle. He had a lot to boast about. He said, man, never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through, who, through which the world has been what? Crucified to me and I to the world. And Jesus is opening up this subject when in Mark 8, he's standing way up north in Caesarea Philippi and he just determines to go back and face death in Jerusalem at the very point he could most easily escape it. He said, I'm going I'm to raise up a generation of people that are full of my resurrection life. And the world, with all its distorting elements, will be crucified. And the old life will die in Jesus so that the new life can come. And, he talks, and he's already talked about that new life a few, four chapters earlier in Galatians. Chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. Now this takes on a larger meaning in light of the resurrection, uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. 
This means by my faith in Christ, I'm crucified with Christ. He said, nevertheless, I live, and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. So he said, I'm crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. And everybody listening to him says, uh, oh, you seem to still be there, and you're still moving. What do you mean you live if you're saying you're dead? He said, well, it's not me that really lives. This is the exchanged life. This is the privilege we have.